We are yet still in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and following. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We are in these sermons this winter and spring dealing with living the Christian life. Nothing we can do now or should have done or could have done or will do will ever merit our salvation. That is freely bestowed upon us by the grace of God. But from that moment, when God, by His sovereign Spirit, reaches down into our dead hearts and quickens us and makes us alive in Christ, brings us from death to life, sheds the light of His glorious gospel in our hearts, warms and fills and vivifies our souls and brings us to that place where we say we're saved. We're rescued from the doom and the darkness and the gloom and the condemnation that our sins push us toward. We have been lifted up. We've been seated in heavenly places. We've been brought into a new kingdom. We have been declared to be righteous and just before the bar of the judgment of the king. And all this for the sake of Christ, his merits. His obedience, His good works, His impeccable life, His every thought, word, and deed was pleasing to the Father. And He accepted that work as our work. Isn't that marvelous? What shall we say then? Shall we sin? that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we that are dead to sin, in other words, sin and the penalty of sin, the ordinance that was against us, the penalty of the law has been nailed to the cross. And as the great song says, it's been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. How can we that have had that kind of divine transaction enacted upon our behalf, how can we embrace sin? How can we love straying? How can we enjoy filth and going astray? How can we live in the miry pit out of which God has lifted our souls by His divine grace? We can't. The truly renewed person has been renewed in his olfactory glands and it's a stench to him. And he hates his sin and he hates his 
misdeeds. And we've looked for a couple of weeks at these particular sins, and we've looked at the, the words in the New Testament, especially a dozen words last week that talk about the different ways in which our sin is a malformation of God's creation and how we're different. God will take you just the way you are, but He won't leave you the way you are. He will begin a work in you, and He will begin to grow you and mature you and change you and clean you up and turn you and lift you and steady you and send you. He that hath begun a good work in us will surely bring it to conclusion. And there's a day in which that will happen. It's called in this text the day of visitation. The day when Christ returns. The day when time ceases and eternity begins. The day in which all things are coming to their final reckoning. It's a day that we dread in one sense, but it's a day we long for in the other sense. But we've got this, this sojourn. We've got this period of time in which we're an alien. A time from which we've been seated in heavenly places. And a time in which one day when we shall be raised to be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. There's a period of time in there. For the thief on the cross, it wasn't very long. <laughs> the Lord saved him from his sins and he said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. But not very many people get that much grace. <laughs> Most of us receive grace and there's a number of days, years, between the day that we are gloriously and wonderfully saved by the grace of God and the day that we're transformed in His likeness. But all along the way, all along the sojourn, the pilgrimage that we have, we are constantly being made in the image of Christ. Adam ruined the image of God. Christ assumed the image of man and redeemed the image of man back to the likeness of God. And we as Adam's children looking to Christ are transformed and changed day by day, little by little, shade by shade, grade by grade, nuance, some days glorious transformation other days. But we're striving, we're working, we're moving toward a place. And just as the merits of Christ are the sole basis upon which we are justified, that is a monergistic work of God, a work of one soul, person, God Himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, secures our salvation. But the process of sanctification, holiness, 
a process of Christian growth is a synergistic work. It's a work with you and the Spirit of God working, striving in cooperation, walking daily. Peter, in this particular text, when he gives his exhortation, he's talked about who we are in verse 9, and he has given us the urging, the admonition, the exhortation that we are to begin this, this war and to fight this war in verse 11. In verse 12, he tells us to keep. That means hang on to it. Don't give it up. Possess it. If you lose your firm grip, grasp until you're able to once again control, grapple until you have it under some kind of control. Keep your conduct honorable before the Gentiles, before the pagans, before the unbelievers is actually what he's saying. Now, to make his point, he quotes Jesus Christ, his Lord and Master, the one whom he had heard teach and do wonders for three plus years in an earthly ministry. He quotes Christ from the Sermon on the Mount. We read it in our profession of faith earlier. Matthew 5, 16. Jesus said, let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The verses before that said, you are the light of the world. The Christian, the church, the believers are a light in which the moon is a light. The scriptures say that God gave two great lights. The greater light for the day, the sun, and the lesser light for the night. The lesser light is not a source of light. The moon is not like the sun. It is not a flaming ball of gases, but it is a mirror, a reflector of the light of the sun. Yet it is a light, a lesser light, but a light. And that's the sense in which we are the light of the world. And we're to let that light shine. The only way you can keep the light of the moon from shining on something is for an eclipse, something to get between you and the moon, to cover the moon somehow. And that's what Jesus said. He said, you don't cover it. You don't put a veil over it. You don't put it in a bushel, but you let it shine. And that's what we all sang about, most of us, when we were children. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. 
And we had it shining everywhere, shining all day, shining here, shining there. And I like that last little stanza we used to sing in those little meetings when we were kids. Let it shine till Jesus comes. I'm going to let it shine. And that's really what we do as Christians. Okay, Ron, that's the easy part. Let's get back to the hard part. We have to constantly be reminded that this is a battle. And we're going to look at about four or five ways, and there are a lot more, but four or five things quickly that enable us to live this kind of life, to let our light shine, to have a demonstrable good works, to do what Peter calls our conduct. How do you know how you're supposed to live? How do you know what you're supposed to do? What should measure your conduct? What should dictate your conduct? What should be said about the way you live? Well, first of all, law-keeping. Yeah, I said it. Law-keeping. God expects us to keep His commandments. In fact, He ties it to our affection. If you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus said. Love and law-keeping are inextricably bounded and bonded, and we'll see that in the very next principle, but the first one is law-keeping. In order to keep the commandments of God, you must first know what they are. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, gives us a good place to start. But you need to know what is included in each of those commandments and what it calls for, what it sets apart as sacred and what it sets apart as holy, and then we are to be holy like God is holy by keeping the stipulations of the law, which is a transcript of God's person. You need to know what each one is all about. I'm not going to tell you this morning, but I'm going to tell you there's a lot of big picture things in the commandments of God that need to be worked out. For example, the commandment to honor your father and your mother is a commandment that tells us something about sexual orientation. Male and female created he them. Who are we properly in relation to those who brought us forth? But it goes beyond that. It tells us something about authority. Authority is vested in those who have brought something forth in God's authority and the authority of the Father in the home, the authority of the magistrate in the state, the authority of the employer in the economy and how we are to relate to them. It's just one thing. There's a whole lot more to it. We did a whole series in, in the um, summer Bible study a few years ago on the commandments, and we took, we, we took several of them uh, each summer and sort of worked through them, and it's in the archives if you have any interest at all. Or you can get some pretty good books on the commandments. Our library has them. The best one I've ever read is Institutes of Biblical Law by Dr. Rushduni. But there are a lot that are very helpful. For example, the commandment, thou shalt not steal, establishes the right of 
private property and everything that descends from that. For example, the commandment, thou shalt not kill or thou shalt do no murder, establishes the sanctity of life and also, also gives a differentiation between justified taking of a life and unjustified, unrighteous, unholy taking of a life and everything that works in around that. The commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Among all the other things it tells us, it does give us a parameter that we, once we have committed to the one flesh in the union between a husband and a wife, there are to be no others. That's the word alt. No alternative. Add alt to another. Any other. In any other way. At any other time. So it establishes the sacredness of that union. Hey, let me think of another one while I'm just thinking. I shall not covet. I shall not covet has an object. It says, thy neighbors, thy neighbor and thy neighbors, ox, ass, manservant, maidservant. That is what belongs to your neighbor with respect to the means of production. The ox and the ass, the servants are those that generate the service and the wealth within the household and make the money in the field and bear the burdens. Covetousness is always directed toward having in mind getting that which belongs to someone else. That speaks to a confiscatory tax system of a civil government that covets the wealth and the means of getting wealth of others. Now, while I'm at it, thou shalt not covet also says something about gambling and all of the, the lottery and everything that's associated with gambling is not about risk taking. There's no aversion in scripture to taking risk. In fact, taking risk is what an element of stepping out on faith is all about. Taking a risk is not a sin, but it's the motive of the risk and the reward of the risk. And that is to receive that which God has not bestowed you in normal ways. The way you get your wealth is not by taking a chance on the lottery and winning it and getting the money that way or, or gambling in Vegas or wherever else you want to gamble. But the sin there is you've not gotten your wealth the way God says, Behold, I am the Lord thy God that giveth thee wealth. How does he give us wealth? He gives us wealth through health and industry and work and thrift. And production and adding value. And any other way to get wealth is an ungodly way. Either stealing it or, or getting some kind of scheme that will bring it to us in another way other than what God has prescribed. So if we just sort of work our way through the commandments and look at all the different facets of the things that are protected and established by all the commandments, we can see a good bit of our conduct is already guarded and hedged and informed by the law. 
And they're not just the commandments, but the, the statutes and the ordinances and all the things that descend from the commandments laid out so clearly in a very plain and practical terms in the Old Testament. And all of the things that are brought forward in those commandments, the case law that so vividly illustrates the statutory law of the Old Testament code. But let me move quickly to another principle, and it's the principle of the law of love. Love is the keeping of the law. If you want to know a way to order your conduct, say, well, I don't understand the commandments. They, they mean a lot to me, but I'm going to work from, instead of an external code, I'm going to work from an internal emotion, an emotive force within me. Some people say this is the Christian code, is to, is to, to work with motive. In other words, get your heart right, and then your conduct will come out right. And Jesus affirms this. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So check yourself by the law of love. Love is patient, kind. Love does not envy, doesn't violate the 10th commandment. Or boast, it is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. The anger of element, I mean the, the, the element of anger that's in murder is spoken to here. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. The commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love is interminable. Love never ends. How's that for a code to live by? Search your heart. What are your emotions? What are your motives? What are your feelings? How do you feel about things? What moves you in your behavior and your conduct toward every facet of your life, toward your employer, toward the state, toward your neighbors and friends? Is it always and everywhere love? Putting them first? Well, we're turning now to St. Paul. St. Paul pushes us a little further in writing to the Corinthians, as we've just said here, but then he earlier had addressed a situation in Corinth, which uh, I think is familiar to you. The church at Corinth had a lot of problems. One of them was that there was a controversy in the church about meat that had been offered to idols that was then sold in the marketplace. Should a Christian buy and eat this discounted but quality meat that was in the marketplace. A pretty practical question here. And enjoy it for the protein that it is. Or should there be a taboo upon that meat? Because that meat was, after all, first offered to idols. So it is somehow sacred or in the Christian's case, it's somehow tainted and it should not be touched. There was a difference of opinion on how to conduct themselves with respect to eating meat offered to idols. Let me read just the paragraph here. 
Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. (laughs) We've all got some real keen theological insights and it makes us just a little better than our fellow man because we're a little smarter and we've got a little more understanding. We're a little more Gnostic. Notice the very next phrase though. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. In your conduct with others, think in terms of building others up, edifying others, making others preferred to yourself and promoting the good of others. How much is time is spent in our public life tearing down the other person? The exact opposite of what the Bible wants us to do and that is to build up the other. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. There is no credibility whatsoever to that sacrifice that was made to the idol in which the meat was slaughtered. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things and through whom we exist. You see, his point is that we believe in God only and the idols are nothing. So the offerings that are made to the idols are nothing. So the meat that comes from those offerings are nothing. And you understand this, you have a little bit of knowledge. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. There are some who have a different understanding. They don't have the firm conviction and have worked out the implications of the nothingness of idols. What the word means, by the way, it means vanity, nothing. They still have some regard. They remember the days when they sincerely worshiped those idols and they brought those offerings and they would have that meat and that meat was part of the celebratory festivals of that. So it's still in their conscience and so they have that that reluctance. And he says that, and their conscience being weak is defiled. It was when they're called upon to eat that meat or or demanded that that they eat that meat, it hurts their conscience. It hurts them. There's a defilement. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat or better off if we do eat. But take care that this right of yours, that is the right to to eat the meat offered to the nothingness of idols, this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In our own conduct, we change our behavior. We control and we modify our behavior. Not because we think something is wrong, but because we have brothers and sisters who are so offended that they will stumble and they'll be confused and they'll see us and they'll think there's inconsistency. And until they learn better, and they need to be taught, but until they learn better, This is a deep offense to them. And here's Paul's conclusion. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul's willing to give up a good steak dinner 
just so he won't cause the little ones to stumble. This is the principle of the weaker brother. There's a couple of others that I'll just, just mention and then we're, we're done. There's the principle of what I call wisdom living. How do you gauge your conduct? Well, turn to the book of Proverbs, or in Paul says uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23, all things are lawful, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. In other words, do things that are practically wise. Do things that are practically prudent. And here we are, we're directed by the good principles of living found in the book of Proverbs, covering a whole range of conduct from the youthful indiscretions and immorality of the young all the way to, to the vagrancies of the old fool with respect to money, with respect to property, with respect to, to civil arrangements, with respect to marriage, with respect to parents. In fact, what you'll think about with respect to truth and speech, over and over and over there's a there are things that are spoken of. They're almost all grounded in the law, but they just give us a wise way of living. Pay attention to that in your conduct before the Gentiles. And then finally, the principle I mentioned here is the one that's mentioned by Peter, and that is the principle of living to the glory of God. So whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. That really is about as broad, inclusive an admonition as we can find. Does what you say, does what you do, does it glorify God? Ask yourself, how would God get the glory from me doing this or that? How can I imagine this making God look better before these unbelieving people? So, check the Ten Commandments. If that's not enough, check the law of love in your heart to set that as your standard, the standard of building up in love. Think about your weaker brother or sister. Live according to biblical wisdom and check your actions against the glory of God. If that's enough to not, to, if, you're, if you've got that pretty well nailed down, then I'm going to turn you over to another preacher because that's all I got.